Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, episode 11. It's going to be a good one because Matt has some very serious news. And uh, all I see is a note in here about that very serious news that says, I just finished a project. <laughs> what project is that? Oh, yeah. It's, I, think I, I think I mentioned it. It's not, it's not really serious, but it's always nice to get to the end of something. This is a bit of a weird one because we were prepaid for it, which has never happened to me before. <laughs> it's nice getting prepaid, but it's kind of hard working up the uh, <laughs> the energy you need at the end <laughs> um, to to get things finished. But yeah, I've sort of uh, I'm back at my desk. I've got a, the final email ready to go off, and and then next week we can focus on focus on the next thing. So yeah, we just finished this one that we were doing for the for the Department of Energy here in Nova Scotia on like uh, amplitude anomalies in a big 2D survey. Cool. 2D data. Oh, the worst, I, huh? I don't, I don't enjoy don't enjoy working on 2D. No. Mist um, Wonderland. Um, yeah, just mist and weird stuff happening that you're not sure if it's just out of plane or if it's real. And plus the lines are like three to six kilometers apart, so. Who knows? Great, that's great, right. great for explorers, I guess. That's right, interpretive <laughs> leisure. That's what we do here. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I have uh, s- I have two things to say. One, okay, uh, I'm expecting. It's already written down. <laughs> All you have to do is check the show notes. Uh, number one, <clears throat> I and possibly Matt Hall, editor of the Leading Edge tutorials section are going to get a bunch of hate mail for a project that I'm completing uh, in full waveform inversion. And it's really exciting because it is a fascinating project. It's totally legitimate. Uh, In fact, I would claim, as I'm going to in my paper, that it's more FWI than all these fancy, weird FWI things. So um, if you'd like to send me a hate mail, my address is uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia. My pseudonym is Matt Hall. <laughs> Please send it all. Um, and then, actually, wait. I'm going to wait on this second bullet point until we introduce our guest because I bet you she has a lot more experience with that than me. So, without further ado, our guest is Mika McKinnon, scientist, blogger, writer, investigator, science junkie. Uh, she's she's on the web with a whole bunch of different websites, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, the main one is MikaMcKinnon.com. But she's got a couple of blogs. There's some geo stuff. There's some space stuff. There's sciencey things, and she's on Twitter, <laughs> Twitter at Mika McKinnon. So, Mika, welcome to the show. Hello, welcome. Um, yeah, my Mika McKinnon website is so sadly out of date that it, it's it is the main one, and that's tragic. But that's okay. <laughs> well, it's cool. It's uh, it's got links to the blogs, and uh, the blogs are fascinating. There's all sorts of weird, different variety of stuff in there. How did you get to a point where you were doing two different blogs at the same time? Uh, so I am 
I'm a geophysicist. I specialize in disasters, which is fantastic and fun. I also am in Vancouver, which happens to be Hollywood North, where all the sci-fi films. Yeah. So once upon a time, uh, the prop master for Stargate showed up at our physics department saying, I need a string theorist. And I went, I'm not a string theorist. Go hire my friend. And he went off and he did the job. And it turned out it, they didn't need a string theorist. They just, that's the most exciting science they can think of. <laughs> they never heard of it. So, you know, he did that. But the friend eventually found a pretty girl in a telescope in South America and disappeared as these things happen. Uh, so next time they came around, this time I jumped up and said, I want the job. And so I started doing science, but in a fictional context. And I found that over time I was writing for different audiences. I was writing for both a very scientific audience about geoscience, about real life things, and simultaneously writing about science in a completely imaginary context where it makes sense to do things like feed the energy of a solar flare into a black hole. Awesome. And it, that sounds it, like a disaster. It does. <laughs> and it was. It, it, in our show context, it led to time travel. Uh, and although both these things are awesome, they were very different styles of writing for very different audiences. So I ended up splitting my work in order to have one side be focused on science and one side be focused on fiction. Then I went and started writing for io9, where their whole bit is that they have science integrated with pop culture and went, oh, I just wasn't very good at blending the two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. So yeah. out, my initial reasoning might have actually been a better idea to not split them, but eh, once you've done it, might as well keep going. So the, so what was it? Spacemeeker.com that was that sort of the science fiction-y side of things? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so that one ended up being, and is, in, again, all of my personal blogs went sadly and deeply into neglect the moment people started paying me to write. Because it turns out, <laughs> if you have a choice of write this for free for myself because it's fun, or write it on spec and try and get somebody to pay for the exact same piece of writing, mm -hmm. your personal blogs get a lot more tragic and empty over time. Um, yeah. So, well, you know what they say, like, if you're good at something, don't do it for free. Exactly. Well, this has gotten a lot funnier in that now I am I'm managing editor for Science Borealis, which is a nonprofit that exists to promote science blogging in Canada. So if anybody is writing a science blog in Canada, please do register with Science Borealis. You keep your own rights. You get to keep all your writing on your website, all of that. You own everything. All we do is promote your work. So now I'm promoting everybody's science writing on blogs. It's a little bit silly that mine are are in such disarray. So I'm trying to carve that out, out now as at least setting a good example of, right, right, I'm for myself again. So how much of your time now uh, currently is spent doing um, science fiction and or science non-fiction? <laughs> uh, so about, roughly speaking, in a single week, about 50% of my time is spent on disaster policy work for assorted governments. Of the remaining 50%, that's split roughly half and half between science writing and entertainment. Mm -hmm. uh, so entertainment for the most part, uh, the show that I worked on that is most popular that more people have seen than any other project is Stargate Atlantis and Stargate Universe. And that franchise ended, I think four or five years ago now, like it's long enough ago that you go, oh, have you done nothing else since then? Well, I have, 
but it's often projects in, in development or a pilot or working at the conceptual stage. So going into the writer's room and them going, so we're thinking of setting things in a desert. Teach us everything interesting science that could turn into a plot point. So you do that and then the project might never air or it might air five years from now. How much so. do you know about deserts? <laughs> uh, quite a bit, it turns out. Uh, so the trick of working as a science consultant isn't knowing a whole bunch of information, it's knowing how to learn a whole bunch of information. So knowing that cool things exist. So I know just off the top of my head about deserts, I know they have really cool landforms. I know that wind plays a huge role in it. I know that you can have cold and hot deserts. I know that the animals there have extreme adaptations to be able to cope with it. So from there, you can start getting into, okay, let's look up this the specifics of all of these things and see where there's potential for stories. Go, so well, things that you might want to learn, if you want to do a story about this, here's tricks that animals use to survive. Maybe you could have your hero use that as inspiration to get out of whatever sticky situation they're in. So how do you learn? Do you uh, stick your Walkman in headphones and fall asleep and learn by osmosis or what? Where do I go to learn something? Uh, I, I read a lot of, of academic articles because I am exactly that type of geek. I like going to primary sources whenever possible. I spend a lot of time on Twitter because it's a great way to find people who are tuned into things that are different than what I'm obsessed with. So landslides are my deal. If I want to know about landslides, I am actually one of, I've looked up my thesis as a reference before. Nice. <laughs> like who remembers what they were in their thesis? Of course you self-reference. Um, but when it comes to cheetahs, I know nothing. And I know nothing to the point where it's even difficult for me to know what questions to ask. So I use Twitter as a way of finding and hearing those different voices and those people interested in different things with different perspectives and then seeing how they work with that material. And people who do things like credit other people, refer back to their sources, make mistakes and then correct them, are people whose work ethic I can trust more so I can develop a form of professional respect for them even if I haven't worked for them. Hmm, nice, yeah, I mean, uh, I was just sitting there actually wondering, have I ever seen a list of references at the end of the movie, uh, movie credits? I think I, I have. Think like science documentaries, but on things like fiction, we don't even list the science consultants in in the credits because credits are a high currency item. That oh, really? I'm not part of any union. There aren't enough scientists involved in movies to be in a union. So, oh, so you might spend a bunch of time ad advising on a, a project and not get mentioned at all. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. So, I guess, so you're just like a work for hire from the production company or whatever. Yeah, so. exactly. And it's, everything is produced uh, to whatever they need or want. Um, I have done things like some things I will write on spec and then retain the rights for. So the rights will come back to me after X amount of time. So they get ex ah. rights for five years and then it reverts back to me. Um, hmm. I've done all sorts of strange contract things. It's as a freelancer, I find it extremely helpful that my father is my lawyer. I hired him when I was 18, and I get all sorts of consults and contract advice that freelancers normally can't afford. Yeah, that's <laughs> excellent. Have my dad. <laughs> that's excellent. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about disasters? A little bit about uh, the, the other 50% of your time? I'd love to hear. So landslides, anything else? Volcanoes? Uh, yeah. 
I'm out on the West Coast, so I spend a lot of time with earthquakes, volcanoes, um, tsunami, landslides, fires. I tend not to work with storms very much. They actually kind of freak me out. Actually, today, later, I'm going to be heading down and running an earthquake simulator at a giant public festival night market. So it's going to be fun as people are like eating their corn dogs and I'll be going, come here. Come <laughs> a magnitude seven earthquake. It'll be fun. That's awesome. Um, how does it? How are you going to do it? Uh, so uh, the ICBC, our insurance corporation, has put together a earthquake simulator hut, a shake hut, and it's oh, okay. touring the lower mainland. And I'm volunteering through the North Shore Emergency Management Agency. So they are an incredible organization. They're actually UN award winning for the sorts of public information they do. Um, as an example, you can look online at the GeoWeb, and it's an interactive GIS map of all documents and maps that the district has. So all their hazard maps, their property maps, their city plans, their transit maps, all of that is available online. This initially got a lot of pushback because, well, if you tell people they're in a flood area, you're going to depress property values and you're ruining my home. No. But what they found was after an initial dip, property rice prices actually started rising because people felt more confident purchasing when they knew the bounds of risk they were taking that they could make the choice to live in a floodplain was a lot easier than them trying to guess whether or not they were safe. That they were willing to take on risk as opposed to willing to take on uncertainty. Yeah, I can hear that. Uh, I live in New Orleans, so I'm below sea level. <laughs> <laughs> not great. Um, so, so you're doing uh, earthquake simulations, which is awesome. Um, and then for, what, what do you do, modeling? Uh, what, what do you do for, uh, for predicting future disasters? Yeah, um, yeah, so I am one of my several jobs. I'm freelancer, right? Is how many jobs can you get going simultaneously? So one of my jobs is I consult for either Natural Resources Canada or FEMA. You're only allowed to pick one government per year. So every January is am I American or Canadian? <laughs> uh, and for FEMA, I do things like policy advising uh, from the science perspective. So uh, reviewing a curriculum of disaster managers to ensure that they are learning the type of science they need in order to make good decisions or helping develop documents that use science as a basis for making policy decisions. So that's very, very cool and very, very fun when I get to do that work. Uh, with the Canadian government, we've had a decade of defunding and attrition through retiring and other problems. Uh, so there's been several projects in disaster management or in disaster assessment, hazard assessment, that were approved and never funded. So for example, um, Hazus is a program that you use, it's like SimCity on disaster mode, that you use to generate hazard maps. And you enter in your own city, you have your, all your census data, you get to like even have things like, here's the, the different districts for having um, commercial area, you can do your building inventory, it's amazing. Now, wouldn't it be great if you're doing using actual science-based scenarios in there? So ideally, you wanna have all your fault lines in there when generating an earthquake. It's a great idea, but there's nobody who was funded to digitize all the existing fault maps. So they'd have a tiny bit of funding left over and I'd show up for 15 days a year and digitize fault maps so they could include them in these hazard maps. This is tiny, small job. And yet at the end of it, it has the potential to make this tool accessible to people who, to small little cities that otherwise would not have the capacity to do serious science-based hazard assessments. 
Yeah, that's that's excellent. Have you been working on the uh, Alberta wildfire? Any? Uh, I am in the next province over, so I have not been working with Alberta wildfire from a science perspective. Instead, I've been doing working on it from a communications perspective. So as a science writer, uh, there are ethics of conflict of interest. I can't write about projects I'm involved with. I can't write about people I'm involved with. All of these things, it's, it's ethical lines, same as you have in any profession. Because I'm not involved in the Alberta wildfires, that means that I'm allowed to do things like write about the technology being used in the fires and advocating for um, increasing government funding for hazard research or pointing out that Canada doesn't have an equivalent of FEMA. We don't have a single national organization to coordinate a disaster response between different provinces. So wildfire season, you're never going to have just one fire. Fort McMurray is obviously the largest fire going on right now, but it's not the only fire. We've got over a million acres burning in Canada right now in different places. BC's got fires. If you add them all up, it's half the size of the Alberta fires. That's substantial. And we don't have any federal organization that decides as a nation, this is how we'll allocate our resources. Hmm. Yeah, it seems like that's the kind of thing that, you you know, maybe especially in a really gigantic but not too densely populated country, you can sort of get away with as long as you get away with it. And then someday something's really going to yeah, trip you up, right? Because suddenly you're resource constrained and now you don't know what to do. Yeah. It's also, it's interesting in that, so we have had, uh, over the last 10 to 20 years, we have allowed a lot of disaster researchers in public positions to retire. So for example, I specialize in landslides. I pay a lot of attention to landslides. If you start looking through who is currently employed at a federal level to look at landslides, we don't have anybody in British Columbia. Hmm. And we have the Rocky wow. Mountains which are young, sharp, pointy mountains with a lot of rain and a lot of earthquakes. Landslides are a big deal here. There's a reason our universities are a hot spot for disaster research, for mm -hmm. landslide research in particular. We're also trying to put a pipeline through these mountains to get yeah. to the coast. And we don't have any public scientist at a, at a level that can talk about the science of this. It's all going to be through private consulting. And as a member of the public, I'd feel a lot better knowing that the scientists involved were public scientists theoretically working in the public interest. Yeah, right. So um, a couple of days ago, you asked a, a question on Twitter. Um, I'll, I'll just read it so I don't get it wrong. Uh, Canadians, I'm researching rebuilding our scientific public service. What areas have you noticed are painfully understaffed? Hashtag can poly. Um, so I really like that question, and you know we 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 do quite a bit of work with the government here in Nova Scotia and federally. Um, so you know I've got a, a few opinions on it. But what kind of response did you get to that question, or do you get from others working around you in over there in BC? Well, it's so it's interesting because during that conversation was when the federal government in, released that it is doing a hiring boom for fisheries, which okay. is fantastic. Simultaneously. Um, Simultaneous to this question is is the unmuzzling of scientists, which was mm -hmm. a big campaign promise. And some scientists were unmuzzled, were allowed to talk with minimal PR oversight right away. But not all of our federal scientists have been unmuzzled yet. So mm -hmm. not all of them can talk to press freely yet. Which what, is, when you say yet, you, what, what is the mechanism? That, what is the unmuzzling? <laughs> uh, 
the head of the department, the minister, needs to say it happened. Oh, I see. So it's a completely a political thing, and it can be done in one statement. Hmm. So one of those statements happened very, very quickly, and we got Fisheries was allowed to start talking again. Fisheries right. is also now doing a hiring boom. It's great. It's fantastic. But as a journalist, I'm noticing that there are some areas where I try and talk to scientists, and I still can't yet. Mm -hmm. And for some, it's things like the pipelines, climate change, all of those. I kind of expect I'll never be able to talk to them freely, hmm. but it's still ethically I should be able to. Yeah, ethically, yeah. the press should be able to talk to public scientists. Ethically, any member of the public should be able to get free, complete, unedited scientific assessments from scientists employed by the government. That is what happens in the United States with the USGS, with NASA, with all of that. They do have press people who also interface on this but they can just talk. Yeah, yeah. So the policy and opinion is sort of one side of it, and I totally agree with what you just said. Um, and then there's the do, staffing problems. Yeah, well, the staffing, so yeah, internally, and the sort of between departments and between the scientists in different parts of the government and different parts of Canada and the world, you know, this is I, bits of this are a global problem, I think. Um, what do you, do you sort of, look at at all? Are you concerned with at all the state of uh, data discoverability, uh, data accessibility, and data licensing in Canada? Uh, absolutely, and it is, it's really quite unfortunate that there's a lot of information in Canada that is technically open access if only you knew where it was. Mm -hmm. and for a very long time there was, as part of the muzzling, even if the data was accessible, if you asked for it, they wouldn't tell you how to find it. So it was there. <laughs> It was public, and it was hidden under layers of these ridiculously poorly designed websites that you would never be able to navigate. Yeah, or, or, or even literally in a room in the department that's locked and full of boxes. I mean, so that's public data. Yeah, or <laughs> another one is because of uh, one of the... This is one of those follow the, the letter of the law, not the spirit moments, which was we're going to digitize all of those archives and make them accessible by scanning PDFs and putting them online in our library right. without any keywords and without stripping any of the data or making it accessible or crawlable. And then we're going to throw the books away. <laughs> so, and we're not necessarily going to do data quality control in there. So if there's a bad scan on a page and it's blurry and fuzzy, oh, well, we already got rid of the original. Totally. All, of which is, all of these things concern me a lot, um, and it is very concerning how decimated quite a few science departments did get, and that with ratios of we're going to allow 6 or 12 or 20 people to retire and hire one to replace them, but wait, we've got a hiring freeze on so we won't hire anybody, meant that we had a huge number of scientists retire without ever bringing on somebody to replace them. So we lost a lot of institutional knowledge, all of the things that aren't written down. And I don't, that isn't recoverable information. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's upsetting. Uh, I mean, what's the answer? Do we, do we, um, we need more journalists writing about this and, and putting the pressure on the government? Is that it? Well, it's, we also, we just need to hire more scientists. I mean, <laughs> So I live out on the West Coast, British Columbia, earthquakes, big deal, right? And we actually have, we're pretty good at having a lot of seismologists on staff. 
And in particular, at a provincial level and a federal level, there's a lot of seismologists. It's great. It's a lot less depressing than looking at landslides. But then you come up with things like, we don't look for faults under the city of Vancouver because if we found some, we'd have to do something about it. Yikes. Don't look. And I mean, there are scientific reasons that it's hard to look for fault lines in a subduction zone. We don't have earthquakes very often. We had glaciers come through 15,000 years ago and bury everything in sand. We'll have a lot of hidden faults here. But then something happens like the state of Washington will fly a LIDAR survey and they'll stop at the tip of Vancouver Island because that's where the border is and turn back. And we could have collaborated with them. We could have given them a small amount of money on top of that, just continue the flight lines across. And we didn't. So instead, if you look at geological maps, we have all these faults that end very neatly at the U.S. border. Man. Well, <clears throat> right. And then I draw little dashed lines being like, it might go <laughs> Another it example of interpretive leisure, right? <laughs> um, oh, I want to ask you a couple of questions about Twitter specifically while we have you on here. Uh, number one is, have you ever done Twitter ads? No, I have not. However, okay. I have worked for media organizations, and it turns out when you work for media and they retweet your personal accounts, you get their audience too. Sure. <laughs> tons so, and tons of hits, right? Yeah. Um, my audience skyrocketed when I started writing for io9. I bet. I bet. I've, so I started playing around recently with Twitter ads, and I, I don't really know what the goal was other than to do some yeah. benchmarking. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. It's... It's on. That's exactly right. It's on my personal account, and I just wanted to. I, I have three or four stupid tweets out there, like "Hey, look, a science tweet," and that's <laughs> it. That's the entire ad. And um, yeah, I, you know, I, I've been pleased with the results. Um, it's quite a bit more expensive than I would have anticipated, um, but I, I, I don't know if that's a useful tool in in journalism. But certainly, if you have a giant audience, that's already following your one of the organizations you write for, you probably don't need that thing. So well, so this is something we debate in um, inside of freelance groups of whether or not you advertise particular articles that are going well, particularly because with freelance, you often have things like a traffic bonus where you get paid more for every click above a certain baseline amount. Hmm. So for some, it can be useful. However, what we have overall found is it's more useful in terms of um, signaling legitimacy that because you've paid this entry cost that you are not just screwing around and that's more what it says than anything else like it's effectively doing an old phone book ad you probably didn't actually get that big of a of a return off of having an ad in it as opposed to just having a number that existed if people knew what section to look in but by having an ad you look more legitimate so you're more likely to have somebody follow up with you so that's kind of what we're finding but it's all very informal and it's very much depends on your audience hmm. like, well i think straight, straight, straight clickbait than having completely untargeted ads fantastic if you have something that is a much more specialized concept extremely targeted ads are effective if you have anything in between eh, hit or miss yep i think you're right um it's a huge huge problem if you're trying to advertise to a specific group and you've got 
you're trying to whittle that group down out of this gigantic pool of people that is on Twitter, things like group science or group even seismologists. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know how to deal with that. But. One of the things I did learn about social media analytics that just infuriates me is that quite a few of them, Twitter's not as bad as this, but quite a few of them will conflate interests with gender. So, for example, I was, I was upset when I first started writing and realized that according to my analytics, the people who were reading my Earth and Space Science for io9 was something like 80% men. And I'm going, what's happening? Trying to go out, trying to make sure that I'm, I'm doing things, targeting types of stories to be gender inclusive, things like that. And then I realized that if you start reading the fine print of the analytics, the assumption is if you are interested in science, you are a man, unless you are also interested in makeup, pregnancy, or dieting. Wait, wait a minute. You, what, so you're saying that, so the analytics are a model, and the modeling is based on, the, the modeling of gender is based on those sort of those dimensions that you just listed. That was for the particular analytics we were using. That was the model for determining what somebody's gender was. And oh then suddenly goodness. I felt a lot better about my analytics being skewed so heavily male towards men <laughs> was because they're interested in science. So what the analytics were really telling me is I had a very low portion of people interested in pregnancy, dieting, and makeup. Right. Like, okay, I can work with that a lot better. <laughs> So it, it's oh my goodness! You start looking at the analytics to understand how they are lying to you and what yeah. they are using to determine things. I find Google Analytics to be a lot more useful because uh, there's a lot of things that are explicit gender opt-ins when you create your Google accounts. Mm -hmm. So you self-identify as various things, and that as a user you can check and see how you are being identified and edit it if you want. So for a while, apparently, Google guessed. I was a 54-year-old single man in a basement, and I went, oh, let's adjust a few of these things. If I'm going to be targeted for ads, I'd like them to be more relevant to me. I don't yeah. really need them for boxers or for men. Plumbing. Yeah, like there's several things I just don't need. Hey, you've got a blue sticker on your Twitter account. What's that? Uh, so verified. A verified account. This is the weirdest little vanity game on Twitter. So Twitter has a thing where they go, we are going to verify some users so you know that they're not a hoax. And they do this for celebrity accounts. And you can't request it. It just happens. Um, I have mine because I worked for a major media organization that they had an agreement with. And they went through and they verified all of the journalists with it. Um, however, if you go through, you can also find that Elvis Presley has a verified account. And you go, that's <laughs> not right. Like, you're telling me this is actually Elvis? <laughs> He's yeah. back, baby. Yeah. Um, so this <laughs> Monroe also has one. Like, there's a couple like that where you're going, okay, clearly this is an advertising thing. This has to do with money. Mm. The consequences of having a verified check mark is that again, it's an, it signals legitimacy. Uh, to go with that, it also verified users can see information from other verified users more easily. So it makes it more. It is a lower threshold for me to be able to get a hold of somebody on Twitter who otherwise I wouldn't have direct ac access to. For example, William Shatner will see it if I tweet at him. I mean, he can still ignore uh, me, but that visibility is much more likely to be there. Mm -hmm. and you, yet, I, I, like, I said something about Twitter 
I don't know, this week, I think it was on another podcast I was listening to, and, and you know, I hear quite a bit that, I mean, well, there is undeniably an ugly side to Twitter, oh, yeah. um, you know, and I'm, I'm a, a not very well connected white guy, um, so, you know, little of it gets directed at me, and I, I know that celebrities get quite a bit of, um, you know, hassle, um, on Twitter, but do you um, find, as a you know, f fairly high-profile writer on science, and as a woman, do do you how much of that do you get to experience? I guess. Oh yeah, the joy, the fun. Mm. Uh, so, tiny bit of backstory, which is, um, I have a very strange little piece of family history that means a different family member was targeted and doxed before doxing was a phrase, and as a consequence of that we all stepped up our online security way before I started working in, in public, hmm. before Twitter even existed. Honestly, it's been a while now. Um, so that has, that has changed the types of things I'm willing to talk about in public and the types of information that is accessible about me. For example, I haven't had an actual physical address in something like 10 years at this point. I literally just don't have one. Hmm. The place I currently am, I don't live here. <laughs> Even if you can figure out where I was, that's not a thing. Um, so that's fascinating. How do you the obfuscate your mail? Yeah, and stuff. I, and it makes it so. There's a couple of pieces that that comes out of. So then, when I started writing for io9 and my my visibility grew, I started receiving hate mail, and I received a lot of hate mail. But I only kept track of death threats and rape threats, because they were threats. So I have an archive of them, but I just, I literally dump them all into an archive. I don't respond to them. I don't need to do anything with them. They get insta-blocked, so they can't resend from the same thing. Um, but effectively, I keep it around in case I ever need to reference it for anything. And that was on the advice of my fantastic lawyer, my dad. <laughs> I'll just keep that around in case I needed it. Well, when I stopped writing for io9, I, I checked the archive and closed it because I no longer had that email account, didn't need it anymore, done. Uh, and discovered that I'd had, I'd said all along, I get at least one piece of, of threat mail every single day, but I listed my actual numbers. So it was over, I think it was 700 pieces in 600 days, something like that. I, I would have to check Twitter to find out what the numbers are. Uh, and that was somehow much more shocking than I get this every single day. Like that resonated a lot more. Yeah. And I'm not sure why. I think because it, it gets the, um, the extended nature of it, that it happens over time. Yeah. That it's not just one day or one bad incident. I was also working at io9 during the start of Gamergate. And Gamergate was targeted at Kokoto, which is a sibling site to io9. They're inside the same media network. Mm -hmm. So although we had nothing to do with it, as being just existing on the same network for about two months, every single day when I woke up and moderated comments, there was extremely graphic imagery. Just horrific stuff every day that wasn't even directed at me. It was just spamming my site that I had to clean up and get rid of. So there's, and and that one wasn't even a cost of being a woman. That was a, a cost of you exist on the internet. I'm right. going to make your life miserable. Hmm. Um, I have had things more directly targeted at me. Um, it has impacted how I interact with things. So. It, it makes it a very weird push-pull in terms of 
the more success I have, the more exposure I have, the more at risk I am. Hmm. Um, and that causes, say, my mom a great deal of concern when I do something that is a risk of, well, I'm going to be higher profile. This might not pay off in terms of more of a job. And it might pay off in more stalkers. <laughs> right. Sure. Yay! Yeah. Everybody wants another stalker, right? Too bad you um, can't use them as currency, right? Exactly. And there's also this weird push-pull in in advertising where I'm going to be at a certain time. So if I'm giving a talk, I want people to come to the talk. If I'm doing an event, I want people to come to the event. Doing promotion for it is part of my job. But that also means I'm saying, hey, I'm going to be at this location and this time. Come on by, which puts me at greater risk. Yeah. So that means I only accept speaking gigs from places that have clear sexual harassment policies and I have confidence that they will back me up if there's a problem. If I'm going into an unknown situation, I push very, very hard to have somebody come with me. I usually pick uh, a man in my life because if I advocate for myself, I can be interpreted as being bossy or pushy or unreasonable. Whereas if a man advocates on my behalf, he's being protective and authoritative. Hmm. So it's, that is one of the compromises I've made where I go, you know what, sometimes I'm not the best advocate for myself because I will be less effective. It will cause me more stress and do me less good. Just bring somebody else to do it for me. Yeah, right. I mean, well. I can't, uh, you know, I can't even begin, well, I can't, I'm sort of speechless really by what you just said. I mean, you know, I read about this stuff, but it's totally different to hear it coming from from you, you know, someone, I mean, I don't know you, but I know you through yeah, the internet for the last several years, and, um, and, and, you know, we're in the same community, essentially. It's shocking, it really is, and it, well, I can't even express how in awe I am of you continuing to get more and more awesome through all of that, and just thank goodness that you do, because honestly, I, the the amount of privilege that's extended to to me and Graham and other white guys around doing things, I, I don't think I've ever had hate mail in my life from from anybody in any context, and. Except you're about to article. These other threats that you receive, I mean, death and rape threats, to, it's, it, it's crazy because it feels so otherworldly to me, but it isn't otherworldly. It's actually here in, in my world, in my community. And so just thank goodness that you talk about it. And uh, I, I don't really know what else to say, but just thanks and sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Well, crazy. I want to. It's crazy. What is so? What's I, more disturbing about this is so I have an ethnically mixed heritage, but I pass as white, so I get a lot of privilege from that. I have an ambiguous name. People often read misread Mika as Mike and communicate with me as though I am Mike for literally years, and I never mm -hmm. correct them. That is a privilege I see. I am of sound body and can wander around without any visible disabilities, <laughs> which is again a huge privilege. On top totally. of all that. I find that the hate that I get as a science communicator is less upsetting than the discrimination I've faced as a field geophysicist. That in field geophysics, it's, it involves going out into the wilderness and it mm -hmm. involves spending a lot of time out there. And it's like the social norms are delayed by 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years. And suddenly I'd have people on my cruise who literally would tell me I should be in charge because I'm the man. And I'm going, you've literally never seen this equipment before. It's 2,400 
hundred volts of electricity. If you try playing with this, you could kill yourself. I actually know what I've been. So actually, on second thoughts, go ahead. Yeah, have fun. Let it, let it go, yeah. I've been out on a field crew, and I had them threaten to gang rape me. And I'm like, I have bear spray in the radio. How do you think this is going to go down? They back oh, off. Goodness. We finished our day of collecting data, went home that night, fired everybody, and had to get a new crew and take them out the next day. And that was, goodness. like, Jesus. some camps are great. Some camps are fantastic. Some, especially the well-established camps, have policies and harassment procedures and all of that. You mm. still have risk associated with it, but it's, it's better. But the smaller camps doing the exploration work, it just felt like such a personal risk that mm. sooner or later, something would go so badly wrong, I couldn't fix it. And it was part of why I went, you know what? I'm out. I, right. I don't want to do this. Anymore. I don't want to take that risk. I am having to be so mean and so harsh and so aggressive that I can't be a happy human. Yeah, yeah, you have to become something you're not, essentially. You have to change your personality and your whole, I mean, that's way too high a price. Whereas doing it in science communication, for the most part, I can <laughs> so much, or just block it, and like the actual physical threat to me is so much lower. Right. So. Well, Miko, we appreciate that you're pushing through it all, and you're pushing out awesome content for us all to appreciate and enjoy. Um, thank you for coming to join us on the show today. It's been fascinating. Yeah, definitely. Wow. What a crazy kind of range of stuff we've covered there. And I, but I feel like I, I, I mean, I'm not. I'm not sure it'd be a very happy or entertaining conversation. But I'd love, I'd love to talk sometime about um, the you know gender balance in especially in the industrial side of things where Graham and I kind of play mm -hmm. and the because there's all sorts of levels that some of the things you've been talking about still operate on and uh, in quite kind of subtle and insidious ways. And those, the effects um, of how welcoming the industry is to young women in particular, I think are quite, um, they're quite profound and long lasting and injurious. And, and you know, maybe, maybe when, if, if, if there's an opportunity in the future, we could have you back to chat about that sometime because, it you know, the, I I hear things all the time that they're they're bad. It's worrying. It's it needs to be fixed, and we never talk about them because it's all the mostly guys talking about all the mostly guy stuff. And um, yeah. Anyway, so end of end of that. But yeah, thank you for going there with us today. Yeah, and we can if we do that, then we have to also include the. What can we do about it? How can you be a good ally? And how do we change this? Because otherwise, totally. it's too depressing. And we'll need to just like all take shots during it. <laughs> oh, so <fine>. join us <laughs> at Undersampled Radio, uh, episode whatever, for <laughs> sh shots and depressing conversation. <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll do bear stories. It'll be good. It'll be real bears. Next time, Listeners. we'll end on the awesome science fiction. <laughs> Listeners, thanks for joining us. It's been an awesome show, and uh, we hope to see you next week. Mika, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Thank you.